Hey, everybody, and welcome to The Messy Table, an ordinary space where we can gather together, even in the craziness of current circumstances, despite lockdowns and social distancing and unprecedented loss. And we can pause long enough to remember God is still at work in our mess. Guys, we actually posted a short eight-minute bonus episode last week about fighting fear and COVID-19. And though we know things are continuing to evolve day by day, you can jump on that episode at any time, especially when you're feeling fearful. And just let some of those timeless truths wash over you. Well, I am Jen Jewell, the host of this faith-fueled conversation-style podcast, which airs a brand new episode every other Tuesday. And while we are all slowing down and inevitably considering what really matters in this grand scheme of life, it seemed like the perfect time to share an extra special conversation with you. So last month, right before this coronavirus pandemic started to flare up here in the United States, my husband, Derek, who's a pastor on staff at our church, Life Church, and I were on a quick trip to California where we had the opportunity to sit down and chat with an incredibly wise man. And we thought we'd pass that wisdom along to you as well. But before I introduce him, first, some context. Basically, throughout my husband and I's entire marriage, we've found the conversation between science and faith to be one of importance. And whether that's especially fascinating to you or not, guys, this generation is here for it. They're asking good questions, crucial questions, like, can science and faith really mix? Or do I have to choose just one? Does Christianity have a reasonable foundation, or is it simply a wishful leap in the dark? Should we cling to faith and just ignore science, or cling to science and ignore faith? And though we absolutely do not have all the answers because we are finite human beings, creating space for dialogue and conversation surrounding these important topics is a worthy goal. So that's what this is the start of a conversation that, yes, is incredibly complex, and we can only scratch the surface here in a relatively small amount of time, but we think it's worth digging deeper. You know, if you think about it, the Bible makes some pretty audacious claims, like, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, as opposed to many gods or an eternal universe, which was popular at that time. Like Job 26.7, God stretches the northern sky over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. Like Psalm 19, 1 through 2, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. Like Psalm 104, 24, O Lord, what a variety of things you've made. In wisdom, you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Like Romans 1, 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. So joining Derek and me for this conversation is someone we really respect. Dr. Hugh Ross is an astronomer and astrophysicist who has a degree in physics from the University of British Columbia, a PhD in astronomy from the University of Toronto, and has done years of postdoctoral research at Caltech. On top of that, he's the founder and president of Reasons to Believe, an organization dedicated to demonstrating that science and biblical faith are allies, not enemies. In fact, He's devoted his life to consistently learning new things from both scripture and science, as well as writing books and speaking to seminaries, universities, churches, and various conferences about his passion to share the reasons behind his faith. Well, before we dive in, a couple of quick disclaimers. First, you might have noticed this episode is a bit longer than usual. 
We talked about cutting it back. We talked about splitting it into part one and part two, but we just couldn't do it. And you'll see why. We also figured you are big boys and girls. And if we can all watch a bunch of movies and Netflix shows while stuck in our houses, then you know where to find the pause button if you need to use it. Secondly, I want to point out the obvious, that, of course, various scholars, pastors, theologians, and scientists, even within the Christian community, have differing interpretations on some of the details of, for example, how God got things started, or how God will cause things to end, and other things in between. So when it comes to biblical scholarship, it's important to remember there are essentials and non-essentials. And though we will graciously venture into some non-essential territory in this conversation because we think you can handle it, we will always come back to the basics, the core of what we know to be true. So whether you've called yourself a Christian for a really long time, or maybe you're still kicking the tires on this whole God thing, y'all, either way, we are so truly honored you're here. Grab your coffee, make yourself comfortable, and join us for a chat with Dr. Ross. Well, Dr. Ross, welcome to the messy table. Thank you. Table looks pretty neat, actually. (laughs) (laughs) We're not messy enough. Well, we're so excited to be here with you. Jen and I are just thankful for you. We're thankful for your ministry and just appreciate your passion to reach people for Christ. So now for the record, for all the listeners out there, you're an astronomer, you're an astrophysicist, you're a cosmologist, not a cosmetologist because you don't do hair. I don't do hair. Just for the record. And I'm not an astrologer either. (laughs) Right. Very different things. So we're eager to just dive in and ask you approximately one million questions. Are you ready? I'll do less than that, please. (laughs) (laughs) First, just kind of give us a glimpse into your life. Tell us who you are and what you're all about. Well, I was born, raised, and educated in Canada, but I've been living here in the U.S. ever since I began postdoctoral research studies at Caltech. Mm. And uh, it was at Caltech that I wound up meeting my wife. So I've been married for the past four decades. We've got two sons. Mm. Uh, one's an artist and the other one is getting his doctorate in clinical neuropsychology. And uh, my wife and I founded Reasons to Believe about 35 years ago. Awesome. Four decades married. Congrats. Yes. Thank you. I love it. Okay. So like you said, you're a highly revered astrophysicist and you're Christian. But it hasn't always been that way. So no. take us back. Give us a little backstory on you. Well, I really didn't get to know Christians well until I showed up at Caltech. They're hard to find in Canada. Mm-hmm. I was not raised in a Christian home, but I was raised in a very moral home. I mean, my parents really stressed good morality, uh, even though they didn't believe in eternal life. But it was in my early years, I was seven, when I really got passionate about studying astronomy. I came home with five books on physics and astronomy from the Vancouver Public Library Mm. and did that every week as I was growing up. And uh, when I was 16, I did an in-depth study on cosmology. That's the science of the origin history of the universe. And that's when I recognized that of all the different explanations for the origin of the universe, the Big Bang was fitting the observations. Mm. And as Big Bang, there's a beginning. If the universe has a beginning, there must be a cosmic beginner. So about the beginning of my 17th year, I said, I need to find that cosmic beginner. Mm. The first place I looked for were in the writings of the philosophers, especially Immanuel Kant and René Descartes. I found some serious disappointments in reading their books. And then I began to look at the holy books that undergird the major religions of the world. And uh, went through the Hindu Vedas, the Quran, the Buddhist commentary, Zoroastrianism. Finally, I did pick up a Bible. And when I tell people I didn't really get to know Christians, 
until I showed up at Caltech. I did see two from 30 feet away when I was 11 years old. And these were two businessmen that came into our public school and put two boxes on our teacher's desk. And in those boxes were Gideon Bibles. Mm. So I'm a Gideon convert. Mm. I started reading that Gideon Bible when I was 17. Mm. And uh, after studying it for 18 months, realized that it accurately predicted not only future historical events, but future scientific discoveries. I saw that it actually taught all the fundamental features of Big Bang cosmology thousands mm-hmm. of years before we astronomers discovered that the universe had those characteristics. Mm-hmm. That it wasn't eternal. It wasn't eternal, that it had a space-time beginning, mm. that it expanded from a space-time beginning under laws of physics that don't change. And so it was at age 19, I said, this is obviously not from a mere human source. It must be inspired by the one mm. who actually did all the deeds. Mm. And so I signed my name on the back of the Gideon Bible at age 19, uh, committing my life to Christ. But that was also the beginning of my evangelism ministry, because mm-hmm. I spent 18 months studying the Bible for an hour or two a day, and I drew the conclusion, becoming a Christian means you have to make Jesus, the creator of the universe, the most important person in your life. You have to be public mm-hmm. about your faith. You're all in or you're not really at all. Yeah, and realize this is a commitment that God calls every Christian to follow. So I began to look for opportunities to to share my faith Mm -hmm. because I kept my study totally secret. Nobody knew what I was doing, not even my family members. Uh, But when I signed my name in that Bible, I realized I can no longer be private about this. It has to be public. Okay. So you mentioned studying other holy books and your quest for truth. What was it that made you disregard them and really cling to Christianity? Mainly historical and scientific errors. Okay. I figure, hey, if this is really from the one that created the universe, Mm -hmm. he's going to tell us what's really going on, and it's not going to be filled with errors. When I looked at the Vedas, for example, it talked about the universe oscillating through multiple beginnings and endings with a period of 4.32 billion years between one beginning and the next beginning. And uh, we now know that that doesn't fit the observations. Uh, The universe is older than 4.32 billion years. It's been expanding throughout all that time. And we also know the universe can't rebound from one period of expansion to the next period of expansion. Mm -hmm. The entropy measure is uh, way too high to permit that to happen. Mm-hmm. And when I looked at the Buddhist commentaries, I saw they were basically teaching the same cosmology. Mm-hmm. When I looked at the Quran, they have multiple creation texts, one that's practically borrowed from the Bible, uh, but they contradict one another, especially uh, one text that says that the uh, planets are more distant from us than the stars. Mm-hmm. And even with a naked eye, we know <laughs> that's like, not true. Nope. Dr. Ross, I love your story because it has such a different narrative than what the world tells us. The world tells us that that science and, and the Christian faith are enemies to each other, but you're saying they're allies, and it's actually what led you to faith. Well, I began recognizing that there's a God that created the universe, and if this God is communicated to us through some kind of holy book, it's going to have the same message as what we see through the book of nature. And that's kind of a core of the Christian faith. When you read the Bible, it repeatedly talks about how God reveals himself through two books, the book of nature and the book of scripture. That was unique to the Bible, so Mm -hmm. that's something that caught my attention. I also was impressed that when the Bible dealt with creation texts, it followed the scientific method. That was brought into my life from grade one onwards. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. And it took me another 10 years to realize why the Bible so carefully followed the scientific method. That's actually where the scientific method came from. So the Bible not only challenges you to put everything to the test, it shows you step-by-step step how to put everything to the test. Mm. So you talked about that a beginning points to a beginner. You know, there's kind of mixed reviews, I feel like, on Christians on the topic of the Big Bang. But really what you're saying is there's a beginning. There's a beginning. It's a space-time beginning. I mean, you do see concepts of beginning in other holy books, but mm -hmm. what's unique about the Bible is it talks about not just the beginning of matter and energy, but a space and time itself, and talks about God's activities before he created time. Mm -hmm. The expansion of the universe is unique to the Bible. Mm -hmm. In fact, no other book even spoke about cosmic expansion until the 20th century. So the Bible was ahead of the astronomical curve by a good 2,600 years. Right, right. So Jesus says, you know, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I think sometimes the mind gets put last, like we should check our brain at the door and just have enough faith. And so what is your perspective on a blind faith versus an evidential faith? Well, I see no support for blind faith in the Bible. I mean, you find, uh, you know, several Greek and Hebrew words that are translated as faith into English. Every one of them has a definition, acting upon established truths. Mm. You don't have faith if you haven't taken the steps to determine whether or not it's true. Mm -hmm. But neither do you have faith if you don't act on what you now know to be true. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people believe in God, but they don't act upon it. Right, right. And going back to the scientific method that you talked about, for those who are like, okay, now wait, how does this fit? Where is this in the Bible? Give us a little context. Well, when you look at the different creation texts in the Bible, the ones that are chapter length or longer, you see that it does follow this pattern. Probably the most obvious example is the first page of the Bible, Genesis 1. Step one of the scientific method is do not interpret until you establish the point of view or the mm -hmm. frame of reference. And step two, do not interpret until you establish the starting conditions. Well, we see this in uh, Genesis 1.1, the point of view is the universe. God created the heavens and the earth. Mm -hmm. Keep in mind, there's no Hebrew word for universe, but they got this phrase, okay. the heavens and heavens the earth. earth. It means all of physical reality. But when you go to Genesis 1.2, it changes the frame of reference from the universe to the surface of the waters right, of planet Earth. Right, yeah. The Spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the waters of planet Earth. And likewise, in Genesis 1.2, it gives us the four initial conditions mm -hmm. before God creates in the six-day sequence that's uh, empty of life, unfit for life. Uh, there's water over the whole surface of the earth, and it's dark everywhere in the surface of the earth. And it makes a huge difference if you have the frame of reference for the six days on the surface of the earth below the clouds, as opposed to what's common with a lot of people read the Bible. They think it's God above the clouds telling us what's going on. If you put God above the clouds, what you get in the six days is almost 100% scientific nonsense. Mm. You put the frame of reference on the surface of the waters below the clouds, you get a perfect fit. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm just following Galileo. He was the one who said the biggest mistake you can make in Bible interpretation is to get the wrong frame of reference. So true. So in your research, what have you found to be the most compelling evidence that there has to be a God, that there has to be a beginner at the beginning? Well, the space-time theorems are very compelling. Uh, these are theorems that basically state if we live in a universe 
that expands on average throughout its history, then there must be a beginning of space and time, implying there must be an agent outside of space and time who created our universe of matter, energy, space, and time. So at a minimum, what we get from these space-time theorems is that there must be at least a deistic God behind everything, a God that creates the universe, sets up all the laws of physics. And uh, keep in mind, only a universe that expands on average throughout its history will permit physical life to exist. I don't want to deceive people. Astronomers have come up with ways of looking at the universe where there is no space-time beginning. But every one of those models does not permit the existence of physical life. And here we are. And here we are. <laughs> so, so the fact that we're here yeah. means this kind of God must exist. But I think what's most significant is that this God that transcends space and time is a personal being. Uh, and that's kind of where the debate has shifted in astrophysics, where there's now a consensus that there is this causal agent. But many of my peers are insisting it's not a personal being. Mm. And this is where the fine-tuning, I think, is crucial, is that uh, we can measure certain features of the universe where the degree of fine-tuning design is orders and orders and orders of magnitude greater than anything we human beings are able to pull off. Mm -hmm. And what I've done in some of my lectures is to compare the fine-tuning design we see in a couple of features of the universe, like the cosmic mass density, the dark energy density, and contrast that with the epitome of human inventiveness and achievement, which I think is the gravity wave telescope, LIGO, that's in the state of Washington and Louisiana and, and in Pisa, Italy. And if you contrast that, the design we see in uh, the cosmic mass density and the dark energy density that permits life to exist in the universe, it exceeds the epitome of our human achievement by a factor of 10 to the 97 times. Mm which implies that the one that designed the universe so life can exist in it at a minimum is 10 trillion, 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 trillion times more intelligent and more knowledgeable than the Caltech and MIT physicists that invented and designed this machine and at least that many times better funded than the U.S. government that made it possible to build it. Who was that? Yeah. Well, my whole point is when you look at intelligence, knowledge, creativity, and power, those are attributes that only a personal being can manifest. Mm -hmm. We're no longer talking deism, we're talking theism. And I think we can get to Jesus Christ when we realize the fine tuning is most spectacular in the context of what's needed for billions of humans to be redeemed from sin and evil within a short period of time. Mm. That's where you get the most spectacular mm. fine tuning design evidence in the sciences which means that this personal being is a redeeming being. It's a God that wants to redeem free will human beings unto himself in such a way that they're permanently delivered from evil and suffering. Man, wow. we could talk about fine-tuning for yeah. this whole podcast and never stop. Our son right now, actually, he's learning about the planets and the different atmospheres on different planets and all the extremes and, you know, just talking about how, man, anytime we have a 70-degree, sunny, perfect, beautiful day, like, that's a miracle. It's a miracle. We need to recognize it. Yeah, and here in California, we get to witness that miracle almost every day. <laughs> I know, <laughs> man. <laughs> Which is a reason to believe all in itself. Yeah, right? don't twist no. my arm. I'll well, one thing you can up. share uh, with your son is that uh, we now know that each of the eight planets in our solar system must be designed exactly the way they are 
for advanced life to be possible on Earth. Mm -hmm. We not only have to design our planet, our moon, we got to design the other seven planets. Mm -hmm. Every one of them plays a role. And I joke that uh, when our family celebrates Thanksgiving, we allow time to thank God for Neptune and Mars <laughs> and Venus. It's important. Yeah. It's important. So what I hear you saying is there's evidence that our God is a personal relational God because of the complexities of the universe, the fine-tuning detail that he is an intimate, caring God, that everything that he has created, every event in history is what allows human life to exist, to thrive. And when you look at the fine-tuning evidence— it's spectacular at the level of what you need to get a bacterium. Mm. Far more spectacular if you want microbes existing for a long enough period of time to chemically transform our planet for more advanced life. The fine tuning goes up dramatically when you go from microbes to plants and animals. And far more if you want human beings. Mm. But the greatest fine tuning is what you need to get humans that can be redeemed uh, from sin and evil. And when you go look at the biblical creation texts, I mean, one thing that struck me when I was comparing the different holy books, the Bible has a lot to say about creation and science. Instead of one creation text, you get over two dozen lengthy creation texts. Mm -hmm. And that's not limited to Genesis, right? Oh, As no. I know you talk about a lot. Almost every book of the Bible uh, addresses the topic of creation. And yeah, what I stress is we need to integrate all this creation context. Mm -hmm. And when you do, you discover that every major creation text in the Bible, you know, two dozen plus, they all link the doctrine of creation with the doctrine of redemption. And there's several texts that tell us that God begins his works of redemption before he creates anything at all, mm -hmm. which implies that everything he creates is for the purpose it of has redemption. Purpose. That's powerful. And we're actually seeing that. I mean, I challenge a lot of my scientific peers who are not yet Christians saying, look, it seems like every event in the history of the universe, Earth, and Earth's life, and every component serves a purpose of making possible the redemption of billions of human beings. You may not believe this, but if you'll simply do your scientific research from a biblical redemptive perspective, let's see if it makes you a better scientist. Let's see if it makes you more efficient and understanding the scope of nature and mm -hmm. in predicting future discoveries. Right. And obviously, we know the Bible isn't here to tell us every single tiny detail about the world. There's nothing in there about microwave ovens. Right, right. <laughs> That's true. But what it tells us is with purpose. Yes. I mean, the Bible is not a scientific textbook, but compared to all the other holy books, mm -hmm. it's got more than 10 times to say about creation and science than the rest of them combined. Mm -hmm. And so... It's, I think, important that we look at those. Yeah. And that's the whole basis of the two books doctrine. God gave us two books, a book of nature and the book of scripture. Mm -hmm. Where they overlap, they cooperate one another. That's good. And God wouldn't give us two books if they completely overlap. Creation declares his glory. But neither would he give us two books if there was no overlap at all. Mm. And that's what we see when we look at both books. We see that there is that significant overlap, which means we can take the book of nature, which everybody has seen, to bring them to the book of Scripture. All right. So while we're on the topic of creation, uh, we have some specific questions we sure. would love to ask you. We'd love for you to to unpack um, the creation event from your perspective and from your research. Um, as we dive into this topic, I think it's important to note that it is a, a controversial topic. And it's become one. Hasn't it, always been. Hasn't <laughs> always been. But people can get uh, very passionate 
or defensive about this topic. And I think it's important to remember that there's essentials and there's non-essentials. We know the essentials, the essentials to our faith, the essentials to salvation. God is the creator. He's the ruler of the universe. Jesus is the son of God. He died on the cross. He rose again. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. Yep. The Bible is the inerrant word of God, meaning it is completely without error. Um, I, I love in John thirteen thirty five. it says that they'll know you're my followers by the way that you love. And when sure. I've heard you talk about this, I've even heard you debate this um, with other followers of Christ who have got quite defensive or even downright rude at times, yeah. <laughs> right? But I've always seen you stay calm and you respond in love and I've, I've watched your demeanor, uh, and I really appreciate that about you. So could you unpack kind of your perspective on that? Well, we see in Second Corinthians 5 that we who are followers of Jesus Christ are ambassadors for peace, basically calling unbelievers to make peace with God. And we need to realize these unbelievers watch us. And if we're not able to make peace with one another on the issues that we divide over and be able to dialogue on those divisive issues with love and charity, they're not going to trust us. And so when I'm involved in these kinds of debates where people get rude and nasty, I just try to remind them there's a mission field to be won. That's right. And uh, our demeanor is going to speak louder than our words. But we should be able to have these conversations because we do have an intelligent faith, even if we say, okay, we might see things a little bit differently. That's okay. Well, I think this is an apologetic argument for the Christian faith. When I look at the different religions of the world, mm -hmm. what's unique about Christianity is that it encourages free market dialogue on philosophical and theological issues. And so there's room for disagreement mm -hmm. and debate. Or as I found in many of the non-biblical mm -hmm. religions, there's no room at all. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to be in lockstep with what's yeah. being taught. And I think that's a problem, too. I'm seeing a lot of Christian churches, not enough opportunity for debate and dialogue. Yeah, we got to be able to have these conversations because they're yeah. important. They're important. And, uh, you know, if you're not dialoguing and debating on the important issues of life, then I don't think you're in step with what the Holy Spirit wants. Mm -hmm. well, what's the verse that talks about to test your faith, hold on to what is good? Or First Thessalonians 5.21, test yeah. everything, Thank hold you. fast to that which is good. Thank you. I knew you'd <laughs> have Dr. it. Dr. on top of it right there. <laughs> yeah. and, and we should be able to have these conversations and do so in a way that's life-giving because there are various interpretations on non-essentials where the Bible doesn't speak 100% clearly. And so um, God welcomes us to to question, to seek Him, to grow in wisdom, and that well, happens He wants us to continue discovering and learning. Yeah, yeah and that's not sure. going to happen if we're not willing to engage Definitely. on these issues. That's right. Definitely. Okay, so we all believe the Bible is true. We're all clear on that. Absolutely. <laughs> so there's obviously differing opinions on the topic of the age of the earth and the length of the creation days in Genesis. What is your opinion on the age of the earth and those creation days? Well, as far as the age of the earth goes, uh, we scientists have it pinned down to remarkable accuracy, 4.5662 billion years, plus or minus 0 0.0001 mm -hmm. billion. And that's based on? Best measurements come from uh, looking at uh, you know these primitive meteorites that mm -hmm. were the basis for the formation of the earth. And uh, we look at uh, uranium-238, 235, thorium-232, and the decay products. These radiometric isotopes decay into lead 206, 207, And 100% of the lead we see in the universe comes from the radiometric decay of heavier radioisotopes. 
Uh, there is no lead that doesn't come from any other source. So you can actually measure the quantities of lead 206, 207, 208, uranium 235, 238, and thorium 232. It gives you six independent tools for dating the age of the sample. Okay. And particularly that uh, when you're looking at uh, these three radioisotopes, uh, they have half-lives of 14, 4.5, and uh, 0.7 billion years. So you got the right half-lives to get an accurate date. That explains why we got such a very precise date for the age of the Earth. Uh, with respect to the universe, our best dating methods are not radiometric. Mm -hmm. The cosmic background radiation maps uh, give us the best uh, dates for the age of the universe. And that comes in at 13.79 billion with an error bar of about 0 0.05 billion. Okay. <laughs> so I'm, I'm sure everybody followed yeah, every piece exactly of that. Exactly what you said. Yeah. Talk well, in my book, The Crater and the Cosmos, I actually have many chapters showing the dozens of dating tools we have mm -hmm. scientifically for determining this. But I find within churches, they're more interested in what the Bible's got to say about the age of the universe and the earth as opposed to the science. So, uh, well, I've read the Bible, and it doesn't give me a birth certificate on when the universe or the earth was born. So. No, it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't give you a date, but it does tell you that the mountains are ancient, right. that the rivers are age old. As I've engaged Christians, I think the big controversy, how long are these six days of creation? Right, That's right, right. That's where the real thing goes. Yes. And we would love to hear you talk on that. Well, I never knew this was controversial until nine years after I'd become a Christian. Okay. Because uh, it took coming to the U.S. to realize, oh, there are people who have a different view on this. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. But uh, when I was 17, looking at the text, I said, well, this day must have at least three distinct literal definitions in the original language because three are used on the first page. Right. Creation day one, it's contrasting days and nights. Mm -hmm. There it's using the word day for the daylight hours. On creation day four, it's contrasting seasons, days, and years. That's day for 24 hours. And Genesis 2-4 mm -hmm. uses the word day to refer to all of creation history. So as a day is a long period of time. The other thing I notice is that these six days are bracketed by an evening and a morning. Mm -hmm. And likewise, I realize those words probably have multiple definitions. But at a minimum, they're telling us each creation day has a beginning point in time and an end point in time. And I noted that creation day seven, there's no evening there's morning. It's fascinating. Yeah. So the first six days are finished. The seventh day is not yet finished. And that's actually stated explicitly in Psalm 95 and Hebrews 4, that we're still in God's seventh day. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, picking up the Bible at age 17 this answer for me, an enigma that had plagued me since I was 10 and a half. You know, part of my story. <laughs> 10 and a half. I have a 10 and a half year old, and I don't, I don't know that the same thing is going to be plaguing her, but keep going. Well, what happened when I was about 10 and a half, my parents thought I was being obsessive about my studies in physics and astronomy. And so they wanted to try to broaden my reading. So they bought our family this big, thick book on evolutionary biology. I was the only one that read it. But I told my parents, the numbers don't add up. We got all this speciation before humanity and hardly any afterwards. Can you tell me why? They said, go talk to your science teachers. And the science teachers said, we don't know. Hmm. But when I read Genesis uh, 1 for the first time, 
for six days God creates. On the seventh day, he stops creating. So that explained to me why we see so much evidence for new species of life appearing before humans show up and hardly any afterwards. Mm -hmm. For six days, he creates, and the seventh day, he stops creating. It also explained to me why so many astronomers believe in God and so few people in the life sciences. Because the difference is we astronomers are looking back in time when we look at distant galaxies because it takes slight time to reach our telescope. So almost all of our data comes from the six days. Whereas most research is in the life sciences, they're looking at life today on planet Earth. Mm -hmm. So their data is coming from day seven. And they say, we see no evidence for the supernatural handiwork of God. So tell us why exactly when you look through a telescope, you're looking at the past. Well, when I look at the sun, I can show you sunspots. Mm -hmm. We've got telescopes here. We can look at the sun. Oh, let's do that. that However, <laughs> you're going to be seeing those sunspots as they were eight minutes ago. Right, right. Because it took light eight minutes to travel from mm -hmm. the sun to the telescope. So if I were to look at the Andromeda galaxy, that's something else you can see with the naked eye. Uh, looking at the Andromeda galaxy, it's two and a half million light years away, which means we're seeing the Andromeda not as it is today, but as it was two and a half million years ago. And we astronomers now, telescopes so powerful, we can see the entire history of the universe. We can actually see the cosmic creation event by direct observations, simply by looking 13.8 billion light years away. What do you see? Well, what we see is there's no stars, no galaxies. Uh, we see that there's simply very slight variations in the hot spots and cold spots in the universe. The difference is only a ten thousandth of a degree. So it's just these very subtle temperature changes. If we look earlier than that, uh, all we see is bright light because uh, the universe is fully ionized at that point, which means it's so hot. There's no atoms, so there's no atoms. You can't see the temperature differences. However, when we look at the light, uh, when the cosmic light, when light begins to separate from darkness and we can see these temperature differences, when we measure the polarization signal of those hot and cold spots, it shows us what the universe was like when it was a hundred billionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second old. So that's so close by direct observations we can get to the cosmic creation event. Wow. I think that explains why we get the most compelling scientific proof for the God of the Bible in astronomy, mm. because we have no access to the present, but we do have access <laughs> to the past, and we can actually see the whole history of the universe. So you're living in the past, basically. Well, I tell my wife I can't be held responsible for what's going on in the present because <laughs> all my data comes from the past. That's, uh, like that's good. Uh, but you know, done. another thing that really blows me away is that if God had put us humans here earlier in the history mm -hmm. of the universe, light from the cosmic creation event wouldn't have adequate time to travel on the space surface of the universe and reach our telescopes. We would not be able to see the cosmic creation event. And if you put us here any later, dark energy would be accelerating the expansion of the universe are greater than the velocity of light. Likewise, we wouldn't see the cosmic creation event. God put us here on like planet it was on Earth. Purpose. I believe it's on purpose. He put us here, us humans on Earth, at the precise time when we can actually read the whole history book of the universe from the beginning right up to the present moment. And I think what really seals that, as vast as the universe is, with 50 billion trillion stars, 
we're orbiting the one star where we get a clear view of the whole history mm -hmm. of the universe. If we were placed anywhere else, we wouldn't be able to see all of it. God wanted us to read the book. Wow. All right. So back to the days. All right. <laughs> <laughs> the Hebrew word is yom. Right. You talked about the four different meanings. Well, three are obvious without looking at any Hebrew lexicon. Just look at what you see in the English translation. There's a fourth definition, which is part of the daylight hours. And so it's different from our English word day. The Hebrew word yom translated day has four distinct literal definitions. So even though I believe that these days are six consecutive long periods of time, I have no trouble signing a doctrinal statement that I believe God created it in six literal days because the Hebrew word has four distinct literal definitions. Mm -hmm. And the challenge is, which of the four definitions is implied in the text? And you said it earlier, before you draw that conclusion, read all the creation texts in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And I actually devoted a whole book to this called A Matter of Days, where I take the reader through all 66 books of the Bible, and there you see an overwhelming biblical case that the days have to be long time periods. Mm -hmm. and it can't be as brief as 24 hours. Well, it's interesting. You know, we know in Scripture that a day is like a thousand years to God. And it's funny because I remember growing up, um, I would ask, like, how is this possible? And I remember my dad just talking about that the different planets just in our solar system have a different length of days, different hours. Right. And to <clears throat> me, just that simple analogy helped me to understand, okay, well, then a day can be like a thousand years to God or a thousand years like a day. Well, for example, it takes the sun a quarter billion years to make one trip around the center of our galaxy. Mm. So there you get a, another day definition. Mm -hmm. And so what's a day to God? What's a day? And I think you actually see that when you go to Leviticus, because it talks about a different Sabbath period uh, for the agricultural land. We're That's told, true. work it for six years, then the land is to have a Sabbath rest of one mm. year. That's interesting. And so... Our Sabbath rest is 24 hours. The agricultural land is a whole year. God is not limited by biology. So his rest period could be any period of time he so desires. It's the same pattern, but different lengths yeah, of time. Six and one. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was in a debate just yesterday on Facebook over, you know, well, what day should our Sabbath be? And I said, I think you're missing the point. Mm -hmm. The principle is we're to take regular time out of our work week to focus on the most important issues of life. And whether you make that a Saturday or a Sunday or a Thursday, it doesn't matter. It's one out of seven. Take one day out of seven to stop what you're doing and focus on the most important issues of life. But the whole point is our work can be so fascinating and demanding. That's all we do. And God says, no, you need, you know, you're going to die. You need to think about what's going to happen. Uh, there are issues of life more important than your work. And we all need regular time to focus on that. And our bodies need time to recover from the stress of work. And the agricultural land needs time to recover. Uh, before the use of pesticides, if you didn't rest the land for a year, the nematodes took over. Mm. And uh, you would not get productive, high mm. productivity on your agricultural land. See purpose behind everything. There is. Yes. Absolutely fascinating. So uh, if you don't mind, would you give us a higher elevation view of each of the six creation days or periods of time? Sure. Well, it tells us in uh, Genesis 1-2 that the Spirit of God was hovering or brooding over the waters um, when it was still dark. 
And uh, the word there, Rahab in Hebrew, is used only one other time in the Bible when a female eagle is brooding over her eggs that are just about to hatch. So I believe that creation day one, it begins with God creating life on planet Earth. And that's the time. And the heavens and the earth were already created just in the beginning. Yeah. But what happens on day one is God transforms our atmosphere from being opaque to translucent because it says, let there be light. And there was already light above the clouds, but it was dark underneath the clouds. Because of our perspective, again, the perspective is on the earth. It's on the earth. And where that gets explicit, I mean, go to Job 38, 8, and 9. Job 37, 38, and 39 actually give you a far more detailed account mm-hmm. of creation and this is God scientifically. To Job. Yeah, it's not chronological, but you get a lot more scientific detail than you get in Genesis 1. And there it tells us explicitly it's dark because God blanketed the seas with clouds that kept the seas dark. Now, as an astronomy student, that was fairly easy for me because I knew that the primordial Earth had an atmosphere about 200 times thicker than it has today. Mm. That thick of an atmosphere would let no visible light through so to the surface. it made sense to you. It made sense to me. Venus, which has an atmosphere 80 times thicker than what the Earth has, the only light that makes it to the surface is at the reddest end of the spectrum. There's no blue, yellow, uh, or orange light coming through at all. And so... What happened on day one is God thinned out our atmosphere. What happened on day two, he set up a water cycle. Day two is the most cryptic. It just says water above and water below. (laughs) But if you go to the book of Job, there's a chapter and a half on how God set up a complex water cycle with multiple forms of liquid precipitation and multiple forms of frozen precipitation. And what you see in Job 37 and 38, If we didn't have God setting up all those different kinds of precipitation, we could not have humans globally distributed on the earth. We'd be forced into one locale. We wouldn't be able to exist at all. And so, again, integrating the creation text helps you understand what's going on in Genesis 1. The biggest debate I've seen is on creation day 2. I said, it's pointless. All you got to do is go to Job. You get a whole chapter and a half that tells you what God was doing. So go there. Go to Psalm 104, go to Proverbs 8, go to the book of Isaiah, you get the whole point. By the way, today we understand explicitly how the miracles of creation day one and two occurred. The primordial earth with a thick atmosphere and a very deep ocean, more than a thousand miles deep, experienced a collision slash merger event with another planet. And so you got these two planets coming together and that uh, collision caused the earth to lose its primordial atmosphere and its primordial ocean, and a much thinner atmosphere replaced it, and a much thinner ocean. That's a unique feature of planet Earth. It's a big, rocky planet with a very thin atmosphere and a very thin layer of water. But if we didn't have that, advanced life would never be possible on the Earth. Matter of fact, I've written a blog talking about our understanding of this merger event, It also led to the formation of the moon. There'd be no moon without this merger between Thea and the Earth, this Mm -hmm. other planet. Uh, But the British journal Nature was disturbed that our understanding of this event demanded an extreme amount of fine-tuning design. Mm. So they called upon the modelers, redo your research models and see if we can lower this level of design. Mm -hmm. Six papers were published 
the level of design skyrocketed as we dealt it in more detail. And one of the authors said, this is sure causing us a lot of philosophical disquiet. Wow. Because we now know this is the mm -hmm. supernatural handiwork of God to make this happen. Mm -hmm. Creation day three, it says, let there be land masses. This is when God transforms the earth from a water world, where all he got is water on the surface, where he got oceans and continents coexisting. The latest research tells us you get oxygen and plate tectonics working in such a way that uh, about 2.45 billion years ago, the continents jumped from covering 1% of the planet to covering 27%. You get this sudden jump, which is kind of like the language you see in creation day three. And uh, this allows nutrients to be recycled when you get chemicals coming off the land and the ocean back to the continents. Uh, and it tells us on creation day three that once we got continents, God creates vegetation on the continents. And uh, we've only discovered that recently because uh, vegetation usually decays so rapidly, mm -hmm. you're not going to get fossil remains after a significant period of time. But now they found both isotopes and fossil parts that tell us indeed vegetation was prolific on the continents long before God created animals in the oceans. Mm -hmm. And what you're saying is because the sun, moon, and stars have already been created, and I know we're not to that part of the creation story yet, there's no problem with photosynthesis. No, I mean, you get photosynthesis from day one. As mm -hmm. soon as the atmosphere goes translucent, and we know there's already light. Yeah. Light from the sun is able to come through, photosynthesis can begin. And unless you've got three billion years of microbial activity on the surface of the earth, you're not going to get the chemical transformations that are crucial for plants, animals, and humans to exist. So it explains why we have this long history of microbial life. And that's what I think is phenomenal. When we look at that three billion year history, the earth is packed with these microbes in great diversity. And, but it's exactly the microbes we need to do the necessary chemical transformation of the surface of the earth to permit the entry of plants and animals. Creation day four, it says, uh, let there be the great lights. But it's key what follows, let there be the great lights so they may serve as signs to mark seasons, days, and years. When I looked at that at age 17, I said, well, who needs the signs? And I recognized it's the animals that need those signs. The microbes don't care where the sun, moon, and stars are in the sky, but the animals don't have, at least on occasion, uh, able to ascertain the position of the sun, moon, and stars. They can't regulate their biological clocks and they die. That's the one life form that's got to know where the sun, moon, and stars are in the sky. Mm -hmm. So you're saying they were already there and then the atmosphere became transparent to where they were seen. So to let there be, seen. not God made them, but let there be. Well, it uses the verb, let there be. Mm -hmm. doesn't use the word create or made. Mm -hmm. And it's like what you see in creation day one, let there be light. God created light when he created the universe, but the light does not show up on the surface of the earth until the beginning of creation day one. The atmosphere of the earth doesn't become transparent until day four. And there's actually a new experiment done by physicists that proves that. Basically recognizing that uh, we now have an accurate measure of the oxygen content in Earth's atmosphere. So what these physicists did is they took the known atmosphere of the Earth and the oxygen abundance and said, okay, what kind of atmosphere do we get? And what they discovered is when you're below 1% oxygen, 
the atmosphere is so hazy that creatures on the surface are not going to be able to see the sun, moon, and stars in the sky. They're just going to see light, but it's just haze everywhere. And in their experiment, they raise the oxygen content up step by step and discover when it hits 8% oxygen, the atmosphere becomes clear. The mm. haze is gone. And now these creatures can see this. Well, what we now know about the oxygen history of the Earth is that until 580 million years ago, the oxygen content uh, was below 1%, except for a brief period from 2.45 to 2.2 billion years ago, when it maybe hit 2%. At 2%, it's still hazy. You're not seeing anything. But what we see is this thing called the Great Unconformity. It's a geological event where you get this enormous, sudden chemical transformation of the atmosphere and the crust of the Earth. And the oxygen content jumps from less than 1% up to 8%. And this isn't a gradual thing. It jumps immediately up to 8%. And the moment it hits 8%, you've got animals. Hmm. I mean, this is called the Avalon Explosion where you go from nothing but microbes to animals that are as big as two meters across. And as many evolutionary biologists have pointed out, they come out of nowhere mm -hmm. with no evolutionary history. But from mm -hmm. a divine perspective, that God is wanting to prepare our planet for human beings as rapidly as possible, given the laws of physics he chose, he's gonna be aggressive. Mm -hmm. So the moment it hits 8%, he creates this huge abundance of animal life. Mm -hmm. But at 8%, these are animals without eyes, brains, digestive tracts, or a circulatory system. If you want animals that complex, you need a minimum of 10% oxygen. Well, there's another event, 543 million years ago, where the oxygen jumps immediately from 8% to 10%. And the moment it's 10%, you got the Cambrian explosion, where you have over 50 phyla of animals with brains, circulatory systems, eyes, circulatory tracts, and again, they come out of nowhere. And you even see the most complex of the phyla, the phyla we belong to, the chordates. They appear at the very base of the Cambrian explosion. And that's creation day five. Mm -hmm. Let the seas swarm with these animals. That's the Avalon and Cambrian explosions. But in day five, it talks about a later event where God creates soulish animals. Use the word nefesh. There it's referring to animals that God endows with mind, will, and emotions so that they can form relationships with a higher species, referring to the future human beings. So these would be all the animals that we can tame to do our bidding, to serve and please us, and to emotionally relate to us. All birds and mammals are in this category. A few of the higher reptilian species are in this category, and no other life is. But those life forms need about 20% oxygen. And so there was a moment when it jumped from 10% up to 20%, mm -hmm. and now we've got these animals. Mm -hmm. And this is the second time only you see in the text the word create. You see it three times, when God creates the universe, when God creates these soulish animals, and last of all, when God creates human beings. Mm -hmm. And that word is exclusively used for a brand new creation. So the universe is the first time you got matter, energy, space, and time. Uh, with these soulish animals, it's the first time you got soulish, you know, like mind, will, and emotions, mm -hmm. and a capacity for relationships. For humans, it's referring to the fact that we're spiritual. 
I put it this way, God designed the birds and mammals to serve and please and relate to a higher species. He designed us human beings to relate to and serve and please a higher being. Mm. We're the only species of life that can actually discover God and relate to him. Mm -hmm. Day six, it says that this is when God creates three specialized kinds of land mammals. I want to be clear, Genesis never addresses when God creates the first land mammals, but it does tell us when he creates the later land mammals and identifies three kinds. The short-legged ones, referring to rodents and rabbits, uh, two different kinds of long-legged ones, the herbivores and the carnivores. If you want more detail, go to Job 38 and 39, mm -hmm. which makes the point that God created these later uh, land mammals to make sure that we can launch and sustain civilization. You know, in the 21st century, we think we did it all on our own. The truth is we would have been stuck in the Stone Age if it wasn't for these special animals that God created. So that's what day six is all about, mm -hmm. God creating these animals so they can bond to us and serve and please us, and we can use these animals to launch and sustain civilization. And the day ends with God creating Adam and Eve, mm. from whom we're all descended, and making the point we're different from the other animals. Mm -hmm. They're not spiritual. We are. We're eternal. We're made in God's They're not. image. We're made in God's image. The other animals mm -hmm. are not made in God's image. Right. You talked several different times about God creating, so you, you talked about it just the right time. God steps in, and he miraculously creates. Right. So that's not these animals evolving over billions of years. It was God creating at well, a certain time. Well, we do see uh, microevolution going on in life. And I would expect that if God's behind it all. Because if he creates, he wants his creation to be sustainable. So he creates life forms that have a capacity to adapt. And so we do see microevolution. I think that's all part of God's creation, but not the macroevolution. Right. Like a lizard to a giraffe or something. That's, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know that's ridiculous, but. Well, I mean, even atheists, evolutionary biologists have written books recently making the point if we're talking a new phylum of life, which is basically referring to a life form with a different body plan. For example, our phylum are the chordates, which means we have this backbone structure. And actually, our uh, phylum actually includes creatures with a spinal column without a backbone. But all the vertebrates have a backbone. And so that's kind of a basic body plan. Mm -hmm. Today, there are 30 phyla. At the Cameron Explosion, there are over 50. So we've actually lost a few phyla. But a new phyla, uh, even people like James Valentine say, there's no materialistic way that's going to happen. Uh, we do need something beyond a materialistic or naturalistic explanation. If you want to read about this in detail, I wrote a whole book on this called Improbable Planet, mm -hmm. basically making a point. You look at the history of the earth, you see thousands of places where God stepped in with a miraculous intervention, all designed to prepare the way for the entry of human beings. All for the creation and then redemption right. of humans. Right. It's amazing. Well, God made the universe billions of years old, so we humans in just thousands of years can be redeemed from our sin and evil and have our free will enhanced. And once that happens, we get to exit this universe and enter into a new creation where we spend the rest of eternity. Mm -hmm. The fact that God makes us all happen in thousands of years to me is the greatest miracle of all that we can explore as scientists. Mm -hmm. 
Well, back to these long days. I mean, I know this is a new theory, and I know other people have different theories and believe this different things. This has been debated yeah. since the beginning of the church. But I read that even Augustine, you know, in his City of God noted that it's extremely difficult or perhaps impossible to determine the length of these days. So he's basically saying, um, this isn't necessarily 24 hours. But here's the difference. When you look at the early church fathers mm-hmm. and people who wrote all the way through to the Middle Ages, they debated this issue of the length of the days but they didn't see it as a crucial issue. Mm -hmm. When you read the early church fathers, they've written a total of two pages over their 2,000 pages of commentary. Mm -hmm. It's a non-essential. Yeah. So the fact that only 0.1% of their writing even dealt with this issue tells us they didn't see it as an essential of the Christian faith, but they saw it as something interesting to address. And as they disagreed with one another, you really see a spirit of charity. It's not like today where you get this nasty, rude uh, mm-hmm. attacking of right. other people's beliefs. That's unique to the 20th and 21st century. <laughs> oh, yay for us. <laughs> so obviously we're human. Mm-hmm. Um, so like we said, we're made in the image of God and we've been given special authority over the rest of creation. But we're also incredibly limited. Only God is limitless. And though we can't understand him fully, like you said, it's pretty clear he wants to be known. He wants us to get out there and discover what he's put there in the first place. So how have you learned to seek wisdom and understanding while embracing your limits as a human, knowing I don't have every single answer in the world? Well, we never will either. I Mm -hmm. mean, I tell my fellow scientists here, Unemployment probably won't happen since as a result of the fact that we've learned everything there is to know about the universe. <laughs> That's never going to happen. And likewise, I tell my friends who are theology professors, you're at no similar risk of unemployment because we're never going to plumb the depths of what Scripture can reveal to us. I mean, that was a factor in my conversion. Looking at a book like the Quran, for example, I could see that it was very data-limited. It's vague, uh, repetitious, and it's a short book. But when I look at the Bible, I realize this wasn't written by a mere human being, because if it was, I'd be able to exhaust all of its content. Mm -hmm. The fact that we can't tells us that uh, this is from the one that created everything, Mm -hmm. but also means we need to be humble enough to realize we don't have a complete understanding. There's always more to learn. More to learn. Mm -hmm. And God commands us. And I know you're discovering new things all the time. Well, when I speak on a university campus, I always tell the skeptics, if you're not persuaded today, wait a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. Look at the scientific literature, and you will see a progressively stronger and stronger scientific case for the Christian faith and the God Mm -hmm. of the Bible. And we document that. You can go to our website, reasons.org slash fine-tuning. You get to see the growth of the fine-tuning evidence over a 20-year period. And the growth is such that the evidence gets a minimum of a thousand times stronger every month. So what about when there's not evidence? And let's talk about the miracles in Scripture, because obviously our faith rests on miracles like the incarnation, the resurrection. What is your perspective on miracles and supernatural things? Well, we're not able to prove scientifically every miracle that's described in the Bible, but uh, we can prove several of them. I mean, scientists say, show me a miracle. And I say, well, how about the coming into existence of all matter, energy, space, and time? That's the biggest miracle you can ever uncover. We're a miracle right now. And that's one we got nailed down. So it's like, if you're talking smaller miracles, what's (laughs) the big deal? Mm -hmm. But for example, many of the miracles in the New Testament are beyond scientific testing. But the fact that we can verify the ones mentioned in the Old Testament 
tells us, you know, look, uh, they're trustworthy. And we should be willing to actually look at those in the uh, New Testament. And in the New Testament, it's not just scientific evidence. We've got historical evidence. It's true. Uh, it's Paul who said that, you know, if the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead didn't happen, then uh, we're to be pitied because mm. we believed a lie. But he says, we know it did happen. And he cited the fact that there were 500 eyewitnesses still alive when he wrote that, that saw the resurrected Christ. He saw the resurrected Christ. The disciples saw the resurrected Christ. Uh, there's no body. I mean, if you want to put to rest the Christian faith, just produce the bones of Jesus. Exactly. Nobody's been able Nobody's to do that. Nobody's done that. And it's like Christianity was born at a time of uh, great political, not just political unrest, but political opposition. The Romans wanted to stamp out Christianity. Mm-hmm. The Jews wanted to stamp out mm-hmm. Christianity. They had all the power. If you want to do it, just Yeah, show all us, they had to do show was us the body. show us the body. Uh, and their story about, well, we think the disciples stole the body. Mm-hmm. The text tells us the tomb was sealed with a Roman seal mm-hmm. and guarded by a Roman cohort of soldiers. A Roman cohort numbered a minimum of 16 soldiers to a maximum of 200. Mm-hmm. And these cohort soldiers were trained to defend nine square yards around them against all odds. Mm-hmm. And if they failed, they would be crucified upside down. So they would have fought to the death. Right. And speaking of death, most of the disciples died a brutal death because of what they believed. And I don't know about you, right, but so. I, I probably wouldn't do that for a lie. <laughs> no, you wouldn't do that for a lie. Uh, but also it's unrealistic that uh, 11 untrained Galileans with no weapons uh, would be able to overcome a Roman cohort. Mm. Uh, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, the biblical story about the angels mm-hmm. coming down and terrifying the soldiers, that makes more sense. Mm-hmm. There's a famous story of a bunch of lawyers in the 19th century in Britain who tried to put the resurrection on trial and disprove it. And they all began as atheists and they were converted by the evidence Mm -hmm. and actually wrote on this saying that the historical evidence for the bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth and the dead, in our opinion and in our research, is stronger than the evidence that Napoleon was defeated at Waterloo. And they were writing this at a time when there were still soldiers that were there at the defeat of Waterloo. Wow. Mm-hmm. So, Okay, so my kids would not let me live it down. Uh, my, my son Jack and daughter Hallie, if I didn't ask you questions about dinosaurs. Yeah, so dinosaurs. as you just walk through all of the creation events, where do dinosaurs fit? Well, they would fit in the middle of creation day five. They come after God creates the first animals in the oceans. And they would come before God creates birds and mammals. And since you believe that's a longer period of time, there there was lots of time in there. 230 million years ago to 66 million years ago. Where you can fit this in biblically, Psalm 104 is a long creation psalm saying that God packs the earth with as much life as possible, as diverse as possible. Which means with the changing geological conditions of the earth, he's going to create different life at different times. But it tells us that in Psalm 104, 29 and 30. It's a property of all life to die off, but God recreates and renews the face of the earth. So if you've got a time when there's vast shallow seas on the continents of the earth, that's the perfect time to create dinosaurs. You can't have big animals of that size today because there isn't the water support to Mm. give them the necessary buoyancy. We have whales that weigh 200 tons because they live in the oceans. 
when you got these big dinosaurs roaming the earth, they were basically walking around in 10 to 30 to 40 feet of water. The water provided them with a buoyancy to support their huge body mass. Without that water, the biggest animal you can have is about the size of an elephant. Mm -hmm. Anything bigger than that, gravity is going to do them in. <laughs> They're going to trip and fall with their Dang high... gravity yeah. gets us all. Well, I mean, we even see that and if you watch the NBA. Yeah. is that the tallest basketball players have more problems with the law of gravity than mm. the shorter basketball <laughs> players. And so they're not exactly as mobile as the shorter players. So why did God create dinosaurs? I mean, obviously, we don't know his mind, but in well, your opinion. I take it from Psalm 104. He's intent on packing the earth with as much life as possible, as long and as diverse as possible. Why? So when he creates human beings, we'll have in the crust of the earth all the biodeposits we need to launch and sustain our civilization. So he wanted us to be able to access coal, mm. oil, natural gas, mm. marble, limestone. I mean, the limestone all comes from uh, the bones and shells of animals. Mm. And uh, there's 75 quadrillion tons of it minimum. It's true. And because of that, we can build freeways and skyscrapers. So... Dinosaurs contribute to the biodeposits, as does the uh, shellfish that we see showing up in the Cambrian explosion. And uh, there's a reason why God brings us here at the end of the line, so we can actually reap all this built-up treasure in the crust of the earth that God created over the entire life history uh, of the earth. But what I would say to your children is, don't expect dinosaurs to be mentioned explicitly in the Bible. The Bible gives us the creation highlights, and so it mentions the most significant factors, but not all the factors. Notice it's also silent on uh, the bipedal primates that God created before human beings. They simply don't rise to the level of being the most important. But I do address all of this in my book, Navigating Genesis, okay. where the bipedal primates fit in. I was going to say, that's going to be a, a whole Another discussion that a lot of people would be interested in. Well, there's a reason why God created it. I'll be brief about this. What we see with the bipedal primates that preceded Adam and Eve is that they were progressively more and more dependent for their food supply on large-bodied bird and mammal uh, creatures. Mm -hmm. And these are the animals that use weapons, rocks and sticks, uh, to hunt. And basically that trained all the large-bodied bird and mammal species on the earth. When you see tall bipedals with weapons in their hands, run. Keep in mind God created these life forms to come to us human beings and to serve and please Him. However, God knew that we humans would become sinners and we become abusers of the animals we most desperately need to launch our civilization. But they're still in the animal category from your perspective. They are. They're in the category, same category, say the chimpanzees, the orangutans. Yeah, chimpanzees use weapons uh, mm -hmm. to hunt animals. Mm -hmm. so, and I know we probably can't get into all this right now, but you don't believe that Adam and Eve came from that, but that they were a completely new creation. I do, and I also believe the same thing's true of these bipedal primate species. There are actually field experiments that tell us if you've got a mammal species with an adult body mass of greater than three kilograms, it goes extinct before it can evolve. All the bipedal primate species were bigger than three kilograms. But here's what's interesting. When humans went into Australia, very quickly they wiped out 94% of the large body bird and mammal species that existed there, and hence the Aborigines never got out of the Stone Age. Because Africa 
had about 10 different species of bipedal primates that preceded human beings. Mm -hmm. When humans went into Africa, the extinction rate was only 4.5%. Hence, people there had the animals they needed to launch and sustain civilization. Mm -hmm. Same thing was true of Europe and uh, Asia, not true of North and South America and Australia. Okay, so I can just hear little red flags going off all over with our listeners, like because I know that this is controversial. So what would you say to someone who either disagrees or is like, I'm not sure I'm following you? Where would you point them to hear more? Well, we've written a 400-page book called Who is Adam, where we mm -hmm. go into this in great detail. And today there's a big debate over how we're to interpret the genetics of humans and these creatures that preceded us. Very complex. What we are saying here are reasons to believe is that the systematics and genetics are largely unknown, and therefore we're far better off actually pursuing research that establishes human exceptionalism. This is what the Bible tells us, is that we humans alone have the image of God, and we have abundant scientific evidence that tells us these bipedal primates have preceded us, no symbolic capability, no capacity to advance technology. Their technology is stagnant. They're still using single sticks and rocks uh, throughout their whole uh, existence. Um, and no evidence that they were capable of mathematics mm -hmm. uh, or literature okay. uh, or advanced art. So to, so to sum that up, if that's even possible, you believe that humans did not evolve from the bipedal primates, that God created them in his image in a specific event, All humanity specific is descended from one couple, Adam and Eve, Adam that God specially created, most likely during the last ice age. Uh, Genesis 2 tells us that God created Adam and Eve in a garden mm -hmm. where four known rivers come together. That location today is more than 200 feet below sea level. Hmm. But during the last ice age, it would have been above sea level. Where those rivers come together. Where those rivers come together. So sometime during the last ice age, we're talking 15,000 to 130,000 years ago, I think is a likely date. You say, how does that compare with our best scientific date? The best scientific date is that humans originated 150,000 years ago, plus or minus 150,000 years. What's interesting is we actually get a more accurate date from the Bible than we get from the scientific evidence. Okay, so I'm sure that you get this question a lot. How do you reconcile the difference in genealogy years with the number that you just said? Well, our theologians have written articles on this. You'll see in our reasons.org website making the point not a single genealogy in the Bible is exhaustive. Mm -hmm. It usually represents like a family. Well, they're picking certain names out for a theological reason. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at the different genealogies, some of them are stressing number patterns where they select out 14 names from a particular time period where they drop other names out. If you look at Genesis 5 and 11, each one is 10 names only. And I think what's really going on in Genesis 5 and 11, it's mentioning the names of the patriarchs that died a natural death or were taken by God. Because the vast majority of humans before the flood were being murdered by their fellow man. So I think we're getting, mm -hmm. hey, these are the ones that weren't murdered. Mm -hmm. They actually lived out a full natural life. And it tells us how long they lived. The very fact that it mentions how long they live, I think, is making a point. And it's something I think we need to look at. I mean, everybody says, I'm just going to skip the genealogy, all these names. Mm -hmm. Look for the theological point. Mm -hmm. Some of the genealogies make special mention of the women. Mm -hmm. And so making the point, 
the Gospels for men and women. Mm-hmm. And some of them actually make a point of mentioning certain sinners in the line, like Tamar mm-hmm. is mentioned. Mm-hmm. And you look at what happened in her life. Yeah. Uh, or what about, mention, is it, Rahab, the prostitute. So, right. What say, about like, is it Peleg when the earth was divided? What does that mean? Well, what you see in Genesis 10 is God taking humanity from one locale and spreading them out with the whole face of the mm-hmm. earth. And in Genesis 10, 25, it says the world was divided in the days of Peleg. Mm-hmm. Now, during the last ice age, you had land bridges joining the continents. But as the sea level rose 400 feet, those land bridges disappeared. And I believe the land bridge is being referred to in Genesis 10, 25 is the one joining North and South America to Asia, the Bering Land Bridge. Mm. During the last ice age, it was a 500 mile wide land bridge. But when the sea levels rose, uh, you got Mm -hmm. the Bering Strait. And uh, because of how uh, ferocious uh, the wave activity is in that strait, it prevented humans in North America from returning to Asia. Even though it was only 80 miles across, Mm -hmm. there was no way a boat at that time in history uh, could make the transfer. And so the world became divided. So what would you say to someone, because I've heard this argument time and time and time again, someone who says, if you don't believe in Genesis, that these are six 24-hour days, you're not a Christian, you can't trust the rest of the Bible, which I feel like that's um, that's a block to a lot of people. Well, I don't believe this, so I guess I can't be a Christian. That happens a lot. And uh, again, I would point out, look, the date of the or the length of these days is not in any of the creeds of the church. Mm-hmm. The people who form the creeds, which basically is designed, what are the essentials you need to believe to be a Christian? The fact that they're missing in even the very long creeds, uh, like the Belgic Confession, uh, the Heidelberg Confession, uh, the Westminster Confession, these are very long creedal statements, and yet they drop that out. Mm-hmm. recognizing this is not an essential to Christian faith. Mm-hmm. What's critical to believe, and you see this in the Westminster Confession, that God created in six days, but notice the Westminster Confession doesn't define the length of the days, recognizing there's four different ways to see those days. Lots of options. We just Lots know God options. did it. God, God did, did it. it. That's he the did. camp I'm in. God That's did right. it. <laughs> well, I think what's crucial, God did it in finite time. Mm-hmm. We're not mm-hmm. talking infinite time at finite time, six finite periods of time. Mm -hmm. How long those periods of time are, based on the word for yom. And I think it's also important to realize where we see the greatest fight over this issue are amongst English language speakers. And here's the challenge. Mm -hmm. If you're an English language speaker, you're translating a language Mm -hmm. that has only got 3,000 words, if you don't count the names of cities and people, into a language that's got four million words. So true. Hebrew's a lot smaller. We presume as English language speakers, these words in the Bible have only one definition. Mm -hmm. To give you an example, the word earth that you see in Genesis 1, five distinct literal definitions. Because of how few nouns there are in biblical Hebrew, virtually every noun has multiple literal definitions. That's also true of the adjectives. They have multiple literal definitions. Say, how do you figure out which one you should adopt? Look at all 66 books of the Bible. There's mm-hmm. 39 books written in Hebrew. Go through those 39 books. It'll help you to discern which of the different literal definitions you should use. 
for earth or day or whatever. Mm-hmm. As we've been sitting here and I've been listening to you, which one I want to share with our listeners, it's absolutely amazing you're sitting here without any notes. You know your study well, and I appreciate your passion. Well, I'm a little bit older it. than the two of you. <laughs> we <helps>. have notes. <laughs> uh, but a couple other things that I've noticed is throughout our time together, you've continually referenced that as science learns more, there's more papers that come out, there's more research that confirms the biblical creation events. That's correct. That's fascinating. Uh, the other is this, is that all through it, you talk about the fine-tuning, the intentionality of our good God, all for the purpose of the existence of human beings, of advanced life, and then for the redemption. Well, I'm so passionate about this. Every week I discipline myself to write a blog called Today's New Reason to Believe, mm-hmm. drawn from the latest scientific literature showing amazing scientific discoveries that make a stronger case for the Christian faith. Those blogs, they can access them for free at reasons.org. Such so, a yeah, great resource. Every week you can go to the water cooler with something new. Something mm-hmm. new. Okay, so I've read your book, Always Be Ready. It's amazing. I actually meant to bring it. It had a billion highlights in it, and then I left it, but that's all right. And it has more of an evangelistic bent than your other books. So tell us about your passion, as First Peter 3.15 says, to always be ready. Well, it's always be ready to present sound reasons, good reasons for your faith in Jesus Christ and the Christian faith, and to be able to present it with gentleness, respect, and a clear conscience. Mm. And my wife and I wrote the book, Making the Point. Yes, we have to point out Kathy, reference Kathy. Well, I wrote the book, but uh, I wanted to have some of her stories in there. Okay, okay. And we actually included stories from quite a few people that have been part of our ministry over the years. And so it's not just uh, my writing that's there. It, most of it's mine, but a lot of it is joint effort. Joint effort, right. But our whole point is, if you as a follower of Jesus Christ will put First Peter 3.15 into practice, you'll see God doing amazing miracles to bring people to you that mm-hmm. he has prepared in advance to hear and respond to your good reasons. And the book is just filled with stories saying, you know what you see in the book of Acts? I mean, I don't know of any Christian who's read the book of Acts and says, wow, what an amazing thing to be able to see these kinds of things going on. And what I share in that book is, notice how the book of Acts ends. There is no conclusion. It just stops making the point that this is simply the beginning of the Acts Mm -hmm. and that all of us can have a book of Acts experience on the condition that we commit ourselves to share these good reasons when we have the opportunity but to do it with a Christian demeanor of gentleness, respect, and a clear conscience. And yeah, the book is filled with stories that look like it just comes right out of the book of Acts, Mm -hmm. where God actually blinds people. Oh, there's some crazy stories. There's some crazy stories in there. It's like, this is God. This cannot happen without Him. Well, my whole point is uh, it'll happen to any Christian who's committed to put 1 Peter 3.15 into practice. That's why I included the stories of people besides myself, because people say, well, yeah, you, you're an astrophysicist. Of course, you have all these experiences. Mm -hmm. You've written all these books. That's why I put a lot of stories in from people who've not written books, who don't have a PhD. Mm -hmm. But, you know, one thing I put in there is look at the statistics. When I have a conversation with someone on an airplane, uh, it's a little more than 50% of the time I'm talking to some non-Christian who's got a PhD in science or a doctorate in theology. We all know that doesn't make up 50% of the flying public. Mm -hmm. A friend of mine 
who was in the Mormon faith and came out of the Mormon faith and became a Christian. Like me, he flies a lot. And says, Hugh, I can't tell you how many times I'm seated beside a Mormon or a Jack Mormon, wow. someone who's like yeah, the Yeah, what Mormon was your faith. story? You were sitting next to like a German... Quantum physicist. Yes, <laughs> yes. And all of his questions were all the chapters of your book. <laughs> well, yeah, he asked me eight questions and all eight of them were chapter titles of one of my books. <laughs> and I happened to have one last book in my briefcase and it was that book. That's crazy. So I was able to give it to him. That is amazing. You guys should go check out all of Hugh Ross's stuff and also hear more about his personal story in his childhood with growing up autistic and on the spectrum. And you didn't talk until you were what, like seven? Well, I did have three words. Mm -hmm. Yes, no, and cookie. You can get pretty far <laughs> with those three words. <laughs> but just to see what God has done and how he specifically designed you and wired you just to share the gospel in this unique way well, is amazing. I put that in the book, making the point that God blesses every one of us with a defect or a handicap. But based on 2 Corinthians 4, you can expect God's going to use your defects and handicaps even more powerfully than he'll use your strengths. Mm -hmm. And so don't get mad at God for the defect or the handicap. See it as a blessing, because that's what you see in 2 Corinthians 4. God wants his Holy Spirit to shine through the cracks in our jars. And if we try to patch up the cracks, it's not going to work. And so often we as human beings, we try to patch up our weaknesses mm -hmm. and actually we're encouraged, you know, let God use them. That's yes. so rich in our weakness. He is my child. He shows his strength. He shows his strength, but you got to let him do it. So good. Do you have one final word of just advice or encouragement? Just something you want everybody to hear. Well, if you want reasons, the reasons are there and there's more reasons coming every day. Uh, take a look. It's a lot of fun. And if you're already a believer, look for opportunities to share these reasons because you're going to see God use you in amazing ways. Yes. Thank you so much, Dr. Ross. You are you're awesome. Welcome. Oh, thank you. Well, today we covered a lot of ground. We know it's a lot to process, but we hope as we are all considering what really matters during this unsettling time, that this conversation will serve as a catalyst to get us all thinking a little bigger and digging a little deeper. Most of all, I'm reminded that it was God who took nothing and created every single thing we could ever discover. And He is a God of order and intention and purpose, just as He's always been, guys, long before we showed up on the scene. Even when it feels like this world has turned upside down, y'all, He is not surprised by anything, and He's the one we can trust. Hey, as much as we'd like all the answers, our goal can't be to know everything, but it is to know Him. And He has purposely revealed Himself through His Word, through His creation, and through His Spirit. So if you've ever felt pushed into a corner to choose faith or science, the truth is, science is simply uncovering what God's already put here in the first place. No, our faith is not a blind, wishful leap based on nothing. Instead, He's given us a firm foundation to stand on. And though, of course, we are still continuing to discover exactly how God did it, the bottom line is, He's the one who did it. Well, wrapping up, as always, all the resources mentioned can be found in the conversation notes. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you subscribe to podcasts so that these episodes can just magically appear on your phone. And you can join the conversation by connecting with us on Instagram at The Messy Table Podcast. Last, we do want to mention, be sure and check out Reasons to Believe at Reasons.org. And in addition to Dr. Ross's books, he's partnered with several other scientific organizations within the Christian community to compile their individual studies and assessments into one book, offering a variety of theories on origins and creation from a biblical standpoint. 
It's called Four Views on Creation, Evolution, and Intelligent Design, and some are components for young Earth, some older, some evolutionary creation. But most importantly, all of these Christian scientists, though they do have differing interpretations on some of the non-essentials, they 100% agree that God did it. And no matter how our human theories eventually pan out, guys, one day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Friends, as you hunker down, as you teach your children at home, as you drive to the hospital to care for patients, remember, yes, life is messy, but God is at work in our mess.